0: Alright, when we talked about the Sermon on the Mount, we spent most of our time last week. Uh, and I think the, the phrase that I used was, think different. Think differently. Uh, I was speaking to Brother John afterward, and, and he was telling me uh, about, about a book that was about the Sermon on the Mount, and it was called A Spiritual Revolution. Uh, and I really liked that. Would you, you say that was Brother Earnhardt? Brother Earnhardt had a book that was called A Spiritual Revolution. That's, that's, that's a much better title than mine. I, I, I like that a lot. And it really is. If you think about what the Old Testament was, and you think about the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, that was revolutionary. At that point in time, to think about a nation that would just worship one God, and that not just worship them, but have a relationship with one God. The Ten Commandments introducing the roles and the responsibilities of this nation to God, and also roles and responsibilities to one another, that was revolutionary. So just like the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, now we have the Sermon on the Mount that was bringing revolutionary ideas, and it was encouraging people to think differently. So we talked about in chapter 5, really thinking differently about yourself, thinking differently about how you acted, the choices that you made, thinking differently about your earthly status. Uh, in chapter 6, we, we talked about thinking differently, or a spiritual revolution, with your relationship with God. So in the way that you acted, in the way that you did your charitable deeds, uh, in the way that you prayed, in the way that you fasted, in the way that you focused on what motivated you, everything was going to be completely different. And then at the very end, we talked about, uh, just very briefly, chapter 7, your relationship with others and thinking differently about your relationship with others. Starting from a place, at the beginning of chapter 7, starting from a place of humility, not starting off critically, always looking to judge, always looking to condemn, as so often the Pharisees did, but starting from a place of humility, recognizing that we too have sin in our life. Uh, We we talked a little bit about, uh, very just uh, just, just briefly there, verses 11 and verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What a radical idea. Not an eye for an eye, not a tooth for a tooth, but treating others as we would want to be treated. And those truths were so radical that he says, not everybody's going to get this. We talked about this on Wednesday night. In Brother Delk's class, there was going to be a very narrow group of people that were going to get this. And there were going to be a great many people that were going to try to lead them away. And so he warns them, be careful who you follow. There are going to be a lot of people that are going to proclaim that they are teaching the truth and they're doing it in my name. But in the end, they are going to be judged. And he concludes with this final admonition to move beyond just the academics and put these things into practice. And if you put these things into practice, you're going to establish yourself and you're going to be able to weather the storms of life. Uh, any comments on the Sermon on the Mount or on, on Chapter Seven before we move on to today's uh, to today's class? Okay. Well, if you would, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter seven. Luke chapter seven. Uh, we're we're going to spend some time in Luke, and then we'll flip over to Matthew for the second half. Uh, you know, I put this up there last. Uh, uh, let's see. Last time, this was just a proposed uh, timeline uh, that I found in one of the commentaries. And this suggests that we, we're getting closer to the middle of, of this ministry, the middle of this Galilean ministry. Uh, and so, you know, last week we talked about kind of his fame, his fame rising, the Sermon on the Mount. Now today, we're going to be moving a little bit further in time beyond that. So probably still somewhat in the middle, but moving closer to the end of, of, of the middle of this Galilean ministry. So let's go to Luke chapter 7. Uh, the parallel here is, in, is found in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. But in Luke chapter 7, uh, we are introduced to a centurion. So this is a Roman commander. This is an individual who is, uh, who is over, over a number of soldiers. And this is in Capernaum. And it says there in verse 2, A certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. I want to stop for just a second and think about, there, there are a number of things about the centurion that are very different. But it's interesting that it describes this man as somebody who had a servant, but he had a relationship with this servant. It mentions that servant was dear to him. That's, that's probably unique for a lot of people. If you think about the relationship between a master and a servant, a lot of times a servant would be, you know, disposable. I can get another one. Yes, they did a great job for me, but I'll go out and get another one. Uh, especially when you think about the stereotype uh, of the Roman centurion, of the Roman soldier. It, it, it's kind of remarkable to me that the first thing we're told is that this man has a servant. And this servant is dear to him. He cares. He has compassion for the servant. And when he hears about Jesus, he sends members of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and to heal his servant. As these individuals come to Jesus in, in the following verses, uh, they describe this centurion very differently as well. Uh, they mention when they come to Jesus in verse 5, he loves our nation and has even built us a synagogue. So so again, we are getting a picture of a very, very different person. This is not the Roman centurion that, that I would that I would imagine, maybe that you would imagine. You know, you think about someone who is coming from a conquering nation, who is a military commander, and the first couple of things we're told about him is that he has compassion and, and love, really, for one of his servants. But also, he has a good relationship with the people that he has conquered. It says there, and I I don't take this lightly, he loves our nation. How many people can we say this about? How many military commanders that have gone in to rule over another nation could say that they love that nation? But it's said about this person, and he manifested that love. It wasn't just that he was kind to them or that he was nice to them and maybe he just didn't beat as many people in the square. But he manifested that love with his actions. He actually built them a synagogue. He built them a place to worship. And when he had an opportunity to do something for the servant that he loved, he acted. And he sent people to Jesus. And and he he displays a a wonderful faith. You know, I put up there that he displayed a great faith, but also purity, purity of motive. You know, this was not somebody that wanted to see something spectacular done and say, Hey, I've got an opportunity. I've got a sick guy. I can trot out a sick guy and see if Jesus can do a miracle. you know. No, th- th- this, this displays to me purity of motive. He truly cared about this individual, and he had faith that Jesus Jesus could do something about it. Jesus could heal this person. And his faith is displayed as he, as he goes on in verse 8. Uh, let, let's actually read verse 7. Therefore, I do not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. Another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So he understands authority. He understands what it means to have individuals act when you say the word. And when he sees authority in somebody else, he recognizes it. And he recognizes that authority in Christ. That when Christ says it, it happens. And he says, I know that you can do this. If you are willing to do it. I know that you can do it. And and this faith is is remarkable to Jesus. Jesus marvels at his faith. But what I like is that he also uses this as an opportunity to teach. Uh, Christ is such a wonderful example for so many things. But his teaching style is so opportunistic. You know, it it would be so easy in my mind to think about, okay, yes, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I care about this person, I'm going to help them with this. But he uses every opportunity and he's constantly using what's presented to him as chances to teach and to pull people back to this bigger message. And this is really brought out, uh, I think, a little bit more in, in Matthew's account. Go to Matthew chapter 8, because he, he remarks at what great faith. So he marvels at what great faith, and he says, I've not even found great, this, this level of faith in Israel. But then in Matthew's account, he goes on. In verse 11, He says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he uses this as as an opportunity not only to do something for an individual that has displayed great faith, but also to teach the Jews that were there, and to point out this person as an example. Say, listen, there are going to be more people like this. The Jews had a wonderful opportunity. We're going to talk about this a little bit later, that they are they are squandering. They're squandering an opportunity to display their faith. Of all peoples, they should be the first ones in line, recognizing his authority, recognizing his teaching, and recognizing the opportunity they have. But Jesus is telling of a time when there are going to be more people like that centurion, Gentiles. And these Gentiles are going to come, and they are going to be the ones that are experiencing fellowship with Abraham, with Isaac, with Moses. They are going to be the ones that are going to be in the kingdom, and the Jews are going to be excluding themselves. So, wonderful teaching opportunity. I uh, wanted to put this up there. This is, uh, this is a picture of the synagogue in Capernaum. And this is actually one of the more well-preserved uh, archaeological sites. And so uh, from, from a lot of the things that I've read, this, uh, this was probably not the synagogue that, that this person built. But just underneath this, there's evidence. And you can actually kind of see right there. Uh, and that's why I picked this photo. Just underneath that floor is the original floor. Of the synagogue, this synagogue, uh, it it kind of it kind of ranged in dates, but this synagogue looked like it was it was refinished uh, slightly after the life of Christ. But you can see underneath it the original floor, and that could very well have been the synagogue that this centurion built for them. So, pretty well preserved site. You can see that these synagogues they were just gathering places, and so they were just these areas that were put put in the city for people to come together and to study and to worship. And so I just thought that was interesting. I wanted to put that up there. But this is an example of, of the synagogue in Capernaum. And this is where Christ would go. Uh, after after uh, the apostles were sent out and he talks about their custom, their custom was to go to the synagogue. There were people that were there that were talking about spiritual things, that were studying from the scriptures. And so these are the places that they would go to engage in those spiritual discussions. Uh, well, let's continue on with, with Luke chapter 7. When you go into the next verses, uh, verses 11 and following, he's leaving Capernaum. He's going into a city called Nain. Um, Many of the disciples are going with him. There's a large crowd. As he comes close to the gates of the city, uh, a dead individual is being carried out. It says, the only son of his mother who was a widow, a large crowd from the city was with her. So you've got a crowd coming in and a crowd coming out. And we talked about this last week, but despite the importance and the gravity of of the job that Christ had to do, he was not too busy to be moved with compassion for the everyday things that concern people. People died all the time. People People die every minute of every day. But yet, as Christ was going into the city with a huge crowd following him, the weight of teaching upon him, he sees a woman who is grieved and he is moved with compassion for her. And, and I don't want us to move beyond that. Yes, this is, this is obviously an opportunity for teaching. This is an opportunity to show his authority. But he is, he's shown his authority a lot. He has, done, he has done a lot of miracles. To the people that are following him, there should be no doubt. You know what, What's the difference between 50 miracles and 55 miracles? At a certain point, you, know, you would think that you would reach a period of diminishing return. But he is not too busy to be moved with compassion... For individuals that were experiencing weighty things in their own life. And so I I don't want us to gloss over that and think, okay, he's just doing another miracle. This is all just a means to an end. This was not just a means to an end. He is able to perfectly blend those two things. And that's a wonderful lesson for us, trying to accomplish our goal of teaching and spreading the gospel, but also balancing that with care and love and compassion for for what individuals have going on in their life, because that's important to them. You know, it may not be important to us, but it is important to them. And Jesus is able to do both of those things, of course, perfectly. But he does take this opportunity. And in verse 14, it says, He came and he touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. Now, now this is pretty incredible. Um, we we have seen, it, uh, to my knowledge, this is the first time that we've seen that we've seen Jesus raise somebody from the dead. He's done a lot of healing. He's done a lot of other very very impressive things. But I feel like we're crossing over a threshold here. It is it is remarkable, and, and it really shouldn't be. Uh, it really shouldn't be a huge leap. You think about it. If you can heal somebody who is sick, it makes sense that you could also heal somebody who is dead. If you have already demonstrated that you have power. Over the physical body. This, this should not be a logical leap, but it is, right? It is a difference. There is a difference between so, seeing somebody who is sick, who is now well, and seeing somebody who is dead. Because death is the end. That's it. You, you have crossed over a point that you are not coming back from in this world, and Christ brought him back. Uh, that, that's remarkable. That is truly remarkable that he raised this individual from the dead. This should also have made them think about the prophets, right? Because who else was raising individuals from the dead in the Old Testament? Who else? Elijah and who else? Elijah and Elisha, right? Elijah and Elisha also raised individuals from the dead. And then wasn't it, was it a, I'm going to get him confused. Was it Elisha, right? Was it Elisha's bones? The person touches Elisha's bones? And then he's raised from the dead? So you think about it. There's a lot going on here. There's there's demonstrating his absolute power and authority. But there's also pointing back to the Old Testament and reminding them, hey, who else was able to do this? Elijah and Elisha. Prophets that were sent from God. There are, to the cynical individual, there's always somebody, you know, if you watch watch magicians, you know, every time I watch a magician, I'm like, all right, how'd they do that? You know, you're trying to, like, there's got to be a catch somewhere. I can imagine that there were cynical individuals watching Jesus heal people and say, okay, you know, that, pro- that person probably wasn't that sick, or, you know, maybe they were kind of just doing this thing with their hand, and then they straightened it out. There's, there's no faking raising somebody from the dead. There's no faking that. And, and it says here that this made an impression on the people around them. Uh, it says, verse 16, fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen up among us. God has visited his people, and this report about him went throughout all Judea and the surrounding region. So this this was this made an impression. This also made an impression, as you go on throughout Luke chapter 7, of the disciples of John. So where is John right now? John's in prison, right? John's been in prison by who? Herod. John's been in prison by Herod. He spoke truth to power, and he paid the price for it. So he said, he told them, listen, you know, he is going to increase. I, I must decrease. And John decreased. John decreased. He was, he was in prison, but yet he still has followers. That should be a testament. I, we spent a lot of time talking about John the Baptist. That should be a testament to him. That Jesus has increased to the point that he has these huge crowds and following. There are still people that are <laughs> adhering to John, even in prison. So these disciples come to John in verse 18. And John, it says in verse 19, calls two of them and sent them to Jesus and said, are you the coming one or do we look for another? When these individuals go to Jesus, his response in verse 22 is basically, trust your eyes. Go tell John what you see. And in verse 22, he said, go tell John the things you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. You know, go tell John what you're seeing. Now, here's, here's the question, and this, is, and this is what you'll see some difference on. Was this, John, was this John doubting, or was this John pushing his disciples to the chosen one of the Messiah? And you'll see, you'll see a lot of different things. If you, if you go and you start reading into commentaries, there are people that say, you know, John had really expected a very different Messiah. He understood that there was a Messiah that was coming from God, but he expected a very different Messiah. And now this Messiah is not, he's not doing the things that John expected him to do. And so later in his life, he is seeking confirmation that this actually is the Messiah. Uh, That's certainly a possibility. We're not really told a whole lot about what John's motivation is for sending these individuals to ask Jesus. Uh, Just just my personal opinion, I'm inclined to go the other direction. We have already seen an example of John Sending his disciples to Jesus, knowing that he must decrease while Jesus increases. Uh, If you go, I think I put it up there, John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and in verse 35. Again the next day John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. John has already demonstrated just an incredible amount of humility. And, and in that passage of John chapter 1, he relays that he was told the individual whom the spirit comes and alights upon, that is the one that has come from God. So while it's certainly a possibility that later in his life, uh, in, in prison, there's no telling what he's had to endure in prison, there's certainly a possibility that, that John may have wavered a little bit or, or just had a misunderstanding and he's seeking additional confirmation. I also think that it's just as likely, and, and to me it makes a little bit more sense, that again, he is pointing his disciples to the Messiah. He sees another opportunity. These disciples are still coming to him in prison saying, man, what what do do we think about this guy Jesus? What what is this? And he is using this as an opportunity to say, listen, go. Go ask him. Go ask him for yourself if he's the chosen one or if there's another one coming. Uh, That's what I tend to believe um, is that this is is him taking another opportunity to push these individuals to Christ. And, And because I also think that when you look at the following verses... Jesus Jesus does not hold back at all in his praise uh, of John. And we'll talk about that. uh, We'll talk about the next one. I'll pull that back there. But you think about what Jesus says here. What Jesus says here in the following verses um, He says, What did you go out to see? Again, he uses this as an opportunity. He's talking to the people. He says, When John was preaching and crowds from all around Jerusalem and Judea were going out there, what did you go out there to see? You didn't go out there to see a show. You know, you didn't go out there to see some, some fancy entertainment. You went out there because he was a prophet. You wanted to go out and you wanted to hear the things that were coming from God. You know, John was, uh, John was very ascetic in his appearance. You know, he was this, this rough guy who was, wearing, who was wearing the camel hair and, and eating crickets out in the desert. You know, you weren't going out there to see a show. You weren't going out there for comfort. You were traveling huge distances to go out there and to hear the word of God. And I think he's juxtaposing their situation now and asking them, what are you coming to me for? Are you coming to me to see some miracles? And, that's gonna, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that as he expands on that idea. Are you coming to me to see miracles? Are you coming to me to be entertained? Are you coming to a prophet to truly hear the message that comes from God? But then he praises John in verse 28. I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. It's powerful words powerful words in his praise of John the Baptist. Among women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. But what does he add on to the end of that? As great as John the Baptist is, as great as he is as a prophet, the least in the kingdom of heaven, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. How powerful an invitation is that? Because they held John they held John in great respect, even later on into Jesus' ministry. He uses that respect. He uses that respect to turn on the Pharisees, to say, hey, where was John from? And it says the Pharisees were afraid to answer because they knew how highly, how highly the people regarded John the Baptist. And so that should be a powerful statement in and of itself. As highly as these people regarded John the Baptist, he said, listen, the least in the kingdom of God. The person that responds to the gospel is going to be greater, is going to be greater than John. That should, that should, kind of, that, that should catch them back. Um, he, he, uses this, he uses this to, to continue on. And let, let, me, let, me just, let me just touch on this. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to this thought, because it, it'll it'll go throughout the rest of our lesson. I wanted to mention this. I, I, I this this kind of jumped out at me. Sometimes you read a verse and something just kind of something just kind of catches you. And then you go, down, you go down a rabbit hole. So we'll try to keep this tangent really short. But do you notice that when Jesus is speaking to the, the, the disciples that come from John, and he says, go tell John all these incredible things that you've seen. Do you notice what's included in that list? Okay, let's just go back and look at it. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are, the dead are raised. And in context, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Does that jump out at anybody else? For whatever reason, when I was reading through this, I thought, one of these things does not belong. <laughs> you know, in my mind, this incredible list of signs and wonders and power and authority. And then right there with it is that the poor, the poor have the gospel preached to them. But, but as I started to think about it, Luke Luke has really, maybe more so than the other gospel writers, he has really emphasized the opportunity that is presented here to those that are poor, and those that are of lower classes. Go, go all the way back to the beginning of Luke. And, and like I said, quick tangent, semi-quick tangent, no promises. All right, you go back to Luke chapter 1. Um, uh, not, not Luke chapter 1, sorry, Luke chapter 3 and verse 5. So Luke chapter 3 and verse 5. He quotes, just like everybody else does, from Isaiah in talking about John the Baptist. But Luke goes on. And he, and he includes in verse 5, Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill brought low. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. So you've got really, really low places that are being brought up, and you've got really high places that are being brought down. I was talking to Jonathan Reeves about this, and, he, and he's kind of the one that, that put this thought in my head. But you think about just, again, going back and thinking about the social and the class structure of the time. There There was no mobility. We probably take for granted the amazing amount of social mobility that we have. If you were born, if you were born poor at this point in time, you had no hope. You did not have, you did not have a shot at rising above you, where you were in life. But the gospel, what was so radically, incredibly different about the gospel was that the gospel was bringing hope to you no matter what class you were in. No matter what your physical earthly outlook or class or status would have been, the gospel brought you hope. The earth offered you no hope at this point in time. You you had no shot of advancing your status. But the gospel offered you something different. Conversely, if you were of a high status, you were going to need to give some things up. So if you were a valley, you had the chance to be brought up. If you were a mountain, you were coming down. The gospel was equal opportunity. Whether you were low, whether you were high, whether you were advantaged, whether you were disadvantaged, everybody had the exact same opportunity. And I feel like that's what Luke chapter 3 and verse 5 is saying. Crooked places shall be made straight. The rough ways smooth. Everybody, regardless of your status, regardless of where you are, everyone is going to have the same opportunity to enter into the kingdom. And I think it's interesting that Luke, Luke really seems to pick up on this. Uh, when you go a little bit later on. In John the Baptist John the Baptist's teaching, you know, he's the one that includes those specific instructions to the soldiers. The specific instructions to the tax collectors. And they revolve around money. You know, remember he says to the tax collectors, listen, you can't take more than what you're supposed to. The soldiers, don't extort people. If you go on, and we talked about this uh, last week, in this, this version of the Sermon on the Mount that Luke records after the Beatitudes, he then goes on to pronounce specific woes against those that were wealthy. When you go to Luke chapter 6 and verse 24, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. So it's just interesting to me that when Jesus is now speaking to these disciples of John the Baptist, and he's telling them about all the incredible, earth-shattering things that are happening right now, the fact that the poor have access to the kingdom of heaven is listed right alongside there. And that, that truly is revolutionary. The poor have nothing else. They they have no other advantage in life. But they have the greatest advantage in the kingdom of heaven. Because they can come and they can have fellowship with Christ just like anybody else does. And that makes sense as to why all these individuals are coming to Jesus. These individuals that have been cast out of society now finally have an opportunity. And the opportunity they have is greater than anything else. And so I wanted to, I wanted to, I wanted to mention that. And I think hopefully that kind of gives us a little bit of an idea. And let's, let's look for that as we go throughout the rest of Luke uh, to look at some of these other messages. Um, let, let's continue on. Let's get back to Luke chapter 7. We'd already started talking about this before, before, I, kind of, before I kind of got off there. But, but he goes out and, again, he uses this as an opportunity to start talking to the people about the reception. The reception that, 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 he, that he is getting. And to remind them, again, go back to the beginning. Go back to John the Baptist. What do you really want? Do you want a message from God or do you want to be entertained? And when he goes down and in verse 30, it tells us, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Uh, I probably should have read verse 29. Verse 29 talks about how all these individuals responded well to this, but not the Pharisees and the lawyers. Those that had advantages in this life were rejecting the message. Those that did not. Uh, we're coming to it. Uh, let, let's go on. Let, let's kind of let's let's move on to that next section, um, verses thirty-six through fifty. Again, this is highlighted. This is highlighted with an individual. Jesus takes the opportunity to dine with a Pharisee named Simon. As he is there reclining at supper, this woman who is a sinner comes in, and it, it and it mentions that just this absolute humility, absolute humility in her worship of the Savior. She is washing and anointing Jesus' feet wiping with, with her tears and with her hair. And it, it mentions here, that, of course, Jesus knows what this Pharisee is thinking, and this Pharisee is thinking, like, Man, does he know who is touching him? Uh, you, you almost get the idea that Simon the Pharisee is a little bit, he's a little bit repulsed by this. That this this sinful, this sinful individual, and I don't I don't think we're I don't think it mentions here. It just says in verse thirty seven, a woman in the city who was a sinner. So we're not sure what, what, what her sins were. But clearly, whatever her sins were, it was widely known. It was widely known what kind of a person she was. And, and this Pharisee is a little bit repulsed by this. But yet Jesus, again, uses this as an opportunity. And he says, listen, you know, this individual, he says, can I tell you, can I tell you, a, can I tell you a parable? And, uh, and the parable that he tells them is, he, is these two individuals that owed money. One owed a small amount, one owed a large amount. They're both forgiven. And he says, who's going to be more grateful? Who's going to show greater appreciation? Well, the one, that, the one that had the large amount forgiven. Perfect parallel for what's going on here. So, you know, again, going back to that idea, those that are well have no need of a physician. Jesus said, that's not why I'm coming. I'm coming for those that are not well. I'm coming for those that have lives full of sin so that I can dramatically change them. They are going to be the ones that are going to place great value on that forgiveness. And conversely, those that see no need to change their lives. The Pharisees, the lawyers, the scribes, the princes, the rulers—those that have no desire whatsoever to radically change their lives—are going to be the ones that are going to have the hardest time coming to Christ. And so, it should be so. It should be no surprise when we come to chapter eight. When we come to chapter eight, who do we see that is who do we see that's around uh, that's that's around Jesus? It's these women. It says uh, chapter eight. Uh, let's see, verse 1. It came to pass afterward, he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing glad tidings of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. Joanna, the wife of Chuza, Herod's steward, Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. So these individuals who were not looked upon favorably by society at the time were coming to Christ, and they were coming to Christ in great numbers because they recognize the value of what he was offering. And, and that, that, that is a lesson for us today too. I, I, am, I am as guilty of others of, of having individuals. And, I, and I've even, I think I've even said this before. I'm like, man, that person is so close. They're such a good person. You know, they do everything right. They, they don't need to change that much to come to Christ. And in my mind, that's a good target for the gospel. They're, they're, they're like, you know, if you've got to put a percent, they're like 96% of the way there. If we could just get them to tweak this little thing, they would be such a wonderful Christian. But but how many times are those the people that are the absolute hardest to come to Christ? Because they don't need to change anything. They're living good lives. They're responsible. They've got good morals. You know, in their minds, what do I need to do to be different? And so often it's the individuals that we are probably a little bit repulsed by. It's the individuals that have lives that are just absolutely full of sin. They're the ones that hold the truth of the gospel in highest esteem because they know that their lives need to change. It is abundantly clear to them that the path that they are on is not leading anywhere good. And that's that's, that's a lesson to me, and I know it's a lesson to us, that sometimes when we look with man's eyes at who we think the gospel is a good target for, a lot of times we're way off. We're way off, and we could take a lesson from Jesus there. Uh, while we go to Matthew chapter 12, are there any comments? Any comments on, on our studies in Luke? Yeah, David, we've got, we've got one down here with Debbie. Going back to what you said at the beginning, to look and approach our relationships with humility, and we have our own sins that yeah. we've been forgiven of, relates to that point about judging others and choosing who we're going to speak about the gospel with yeah that's 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 a great connection that's a great connection to go back to chapter 7 and it is you know i, I think there are some you know we, we obviously we classify sins and we hold some sins you know these obviously this isn't good but it's not the end of the world and there are some sins that are just disgusting to us and, and sin should be disgusting all sins should be disgusting to us but you're right approaching that I approaching that relationship with humility, understanding that even even the nice sins, even the nice sins are, are going to be judged They're, in god 's eyes, there is, no, there is no sliding scale of just a little bit of sin here, maybe a lot of sin there. Sin is sin in his eyes. it's a good point, Debbie, thank you for connecting that all right let 's go, let's go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 uh, really picks up on this, this same idea of the reception. that that is so very different among these individuals. And what you can really see is that those, the Pharisees, the lawyers, the scribes, are are just absolutely digging in. So in Matthew chapter 12 and in verse 22, Jesus heals this demon-possessed individuals. The reaction of the multitudes and the crowds is, wow, this, this could be the son of David. This could be the one that we've been waiting for. And what's the reaction of the Pharisees? You know, they, they, are so, they are so frustrated that they are now just grasping at straws. And they're like, well, you know, if he healed a demon and he's got power over demons, he, he could probably be a demon, right? And, and it's just, it's so ridiculous. And, and, and as Christ does, he just logically refutes this. And he points out to them, listen, you know, that, that doesn't make any sense. You know, only one who has come from God can cast out demons. You know, he says, if Satan cast out Satan... In verse 26, he's divided against himself. So what's the point of that? If a demon's casting out another demon, that that, that doesn't make any sense. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Then he kind of turns it on them. And he says, your sons, looking at the Pharisees, your sons claim to cast out demons. So who are they they doing it by? If you're coming at me with this accusation, you know, your sons are also claiming to cast. now, Now, whether they could actually cast out demons, it's not recorded here. I would tend to believe they couldn't. But they claim to be able to cast out demons. And he said, okay, listen, the sons, of the, the sons of the Pharisees, the sons of the prophets, they say they can do this, so who are they doing it by? And he really just turns this on them. But then he expands it out a little bit. And I actually want to go a little bit further. Go, go kind of closer to the end here as he comes to verses 33 through verses 37. And then we'll, we'll skip back to 31. But the warning that he gives them in verse 36 he says, I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I see him saying, listen, listen guys, think about what you're saying. You, you have got so much hatred in your heart towards me. You can't stand the fact that I'm doing good for these individuals. Go, go back to our lesson last week. You were so bothered that I healed an individual on the Sabbath. You are so bothered that you, you tried to set me up just so that you could accuse me of doing good to somebody on the Sabbath. You treat your animals that fall in ditches better than people. And he's coming at them with the same things. Like, guys, you are digging in so hard, you've, you've got to be careful of what you're saying. And I think that idea of warning them against idle words, warning them of letting your heart get so hardened that you go to a place that logically doesn't even make sense. I think that provides the context for verses 31 and 32. Uh, if, you're, if your Bible is like mine, it has, uh, it has this title, The Unpardonable Sin. Um, and, and maybe a lot of times we like to say, oh, man, you know, a sin that can't be forgiven. And, and I think we probably, we probably come at that the wrong way. Because I think what he's saying here is he's just saying, listen, you know, it, there, there is a point in time that your heart gets so absolutely hardened to the truth that you can't come back from it. And so he makes this distinction. Verse 31, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. This this is just my thought on it, and I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts. But Jesus, I feel like, is saying here, Listen, if you hear my teaching and you disagree with my teaching, that is one thing. You know, I am teaching a message. If you disagree with that teaching, you know, you can have, you can think incorrectly about what I'm teaching. And we can work through that and you can be forgiven of that. But if you have been provided with evidence by the Holy Spirit, if you've been provided with authoritative evidence, if you have seen the, the miracles that I've done, you've seen people healed, you've seen people raised from the dead, if you have seen all of that, and now you have just hardened your, your heart to the point that you cannot come to the realization of the truth that there's no forgiveness for you. Because you have gotten to a point where your heart can no longer be pricked. You know, and when I think he's talking about in this age or the age to come. I don't necessarily think about here versus eternity. When I think about age, I think about you know, before he died on the cross, before the church was established, and after the church was established. You know, if you have gotten that point where your, your heart is so hardened, even Christ being raised from the dead is not going to make a difference, and you're not going to change. So that's, that's how I try, to view, I try to view that there in context. Um, if, you, if, you see that, if you see that differently, uh, I'd certainly welcome your comments. Um, or if you have anything to add to that, uh, please let me know. Yeah, Alan? I think similarly, Paul, in Acts 13, when he's preaching... I think he touches on some of the same concept where he says, be careful that this prophecy that I'm doing something that if it was told to you, you wouldn't even believe it. And he's, he's, he's urging the Jews, be careful. You are not who this is talking about because Mm -hmm. if, as he continues to preach, if, if it is, and you won't believe this, you will have judged yourself unworthy of eternal life. He doesn't say I will have judged you unworthy. And he says you'll have decided for yourself, that you don't deserve eternal life, that you're unworthy of it mm-hmm. by just refusing to believe what is going on, what the Spirit is doing, what the gospel is about. And I think, I think it's the same kind of theme here, too. Yeah. No, it's a good connection. It's a good connection. Yeah, David. Um, I heard it explained this way one time. It made a lot of sense. It's the same thing you guys were saying, essentially. But uh, over time, God has thrown out many lifelines to man through the prophets, through John the Baptist, Jesus himself, of course, the Holy Spirit, the final revelation of the will of God, who then confirmed it and sealed it. If if we reject, we refuse, we profane that final lifeline, we refuse to take it, There there is no more yeah. opportunity. There's, there are no more lifelines, that's it. Yeah, what does Hebrews say? Christ is not gonna be crucified again you know there there remains there remains no more sacrifice it's a good point uh, let, let's let's continue on now think about this keep keep this in mind they have just said all these things and i don't think i don't know if it's necessarily the same people it would be wild if it was the exact same people but go to verse 38 it says then some of the scribes and pharisees say teacher we want to see a sign from you <laughs> can you imagine that just like like minutes i feel like like i don't feel like we've gone a lot of time here they said man this guy this guy is casting out demons probably from Satan. And then Jesus admonishes them, shows how ridiculous it is, and they say, okay, cool, so can we see a sign now? Like, <laughs> it, did. It, it, really, it really blows my mind. I hope it wasn't the same people, just for their sakes. I hope it wasn't the same people. But I mean, how bold is that? Even if you're not the same person, even if you're just another Pharisee who's in the crowd, he has just completely refuted these individuals over here. So maybe, maybe in their minds, they were like, okay, so it, it's cool to see signs, <laughs> But you can just see how, how far off they are. And I don't know. I try to, I try to put myself in this crowd and just, just imagine in Jesus' response in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just like you can just imagine him. I just imagine him going, oh, you guys, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. You know, but he says, listen, the only sign that you're going to get, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now starting to talk about, and as he describes in verse 40, the son of man is going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Previewing this, clearly they're not getting it. He's already talked about the temple. You know, what sign do you want to see? Tear the temple down and I'll build it back in three days. What sign are you going to get? The sign of the prophet Jonah. He's dripping on them. He's dripping on them. But then he uses these examples in verse 41 and verse 42. The men of Nineveh. And the Queen of Sheba, individuals that changed when they were confronted with the truth. If it were me, I cannot. I probably would not have gone to the Queen of Sheba. That is not somebody that just comes to the front of come to the front of my mind. But she is. She was an individual, and uh, if you, we'll go back real quick, It's probably the last thing we've got time for. Go back to First Kings, and just look at the words that she says there. Let's see First Kings, First Kings chapter ten. And I think these are the words that, that Jesus is referring to, this attitude. First Kings chapter 10, and look in verse 6. Then she said to the king, speaking to Solomon, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and I saw with my own eyes. And then in verse 9, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. This individual... And I think this is what he's bringing out here. This individual that did not believe. They had heard a report. They're like, yeah, that's probably not true. That's probably not true. But then they saw it with their own eyes. And when they saw it with their own eyes, they're forced to admit that it was true. That's the exact same situation these individuals are in. They are going to be forced to admit that it is true, and they've seen it with their own eyes. Uh, when, you, when you go back there, um, the, the, uh, the, the next section here, he just likens them to this individual who has a demon this demon is cast out, they have the opportunity to be made whole, but yet, because they haven't changed, because they haven't responded to it, they're going to be in a worse situation. They're going to be in a worse situation, and so too would the Jews be. They had this opportunity to change. They had this opportunity when they were confronted with the truth and the authority of his teaching, but they're going to reject it, and now they're going to wind up in a, in a worse condition. Um, that, that's, that's all the time that we have for today, so we will, we will finish up Um, We'll finish up in uh, Matthew chapter 13 next week. So we'll talk about those parables in Matthew chapter 13, uh, and then we'll hopefully move on into the next week's teaching. Thank you.